Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. Welcome to this week's show. Jeremy and Gretchen, welcome. Hello. Hey there. So we've got a great show this week. You have been working on rereading a lot of stuff. And I know one of those things has been the books from Lord of the Rings. Yep. It's been fun. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and some of the differences between that and the movie and why and get into a little bit of the production standpoint on it. We're also going to be talking about what few upcoming events still are on the schedule. But hey, we can hope and we'll see what happens. Today's news is brought to you by Stephanie Schmidt Photography. Stephanie Schmidt Photography specializes in professional headshots, lifestyle images, and high school senior portraits. Visit SherwoodPortraits.com to learn more and to schedule your next photo shoot. So what's in the news? Spam emails up 600% since onset of COVID. Yep. You know, the bad actors will try to scam you coming and going wherever you can. And with COVID and a lot of things changing and people working from home, therefore working remotely and relying a lot more on email and that type of thing, they are seeing a huge increase in spam and scams and all the different things that have been around for a little while before but are really taking the forefront now. And it's very, very important with this to practice all the same guidelines that you would have if an email comes from someone you don't know. Be skeptical. Don't click a link within an email. If you want to go to a site, say Amazon.com, and it's telling you that your account credit card is expired or something, don't use the link within an email. Go to your browser, type it in, log into your account on your own. If it's banking information, call the bank. But do be vigilant about all this kind of stuff. And if one of them gets you, and it can happen, then what you want to do is keep an eye on your financial accounts, change your passwords for those different resources that may be affected. And then uh, if you see anything that's unusual, get a hold of your financial institution as soon as possible to deal with it. And it's not just the emails. Uh, My mother got nine scam calls within like three hours on one day. And they'll get you with any of this stuff. The robocalling is definitely another thing that's a problem. But with COVID and with so much stuff being up in the air right now, we're really seeing a lot of this. Charlie Daniels, dead at 83. Yeah, this one's a bummer. I like Charlie Daniels. I'm not a huge country music person, but I have some friends that really enjoy it. But I still like Charlie Daniels. The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and there's some other yeah. things that well, he's really who known didn't for. Like that song. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the few cowboy or country western songs that crossed into the rock stations because it was fun. Yep, yep, and it was. It really was. And uh, he did a lot of different things too. But uh, the the fiddling playing contest was definitely what you would call his signature song, and he'll be missed. So Charlie Daniels passes at age 83. Sony launches personal air conditioner. Yeah, so Gretchen, I hear you're thinking about getting one of these. What do you think about wearable air conditioners? Okay, I think this sounds really weird. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I live in a place that needs air conditioning desperately. So tell me about this thing. So what this is basically designed to do is solve the problem of being hot and also being cold in the winter because it also works as a a heater. It's a pocket-sized air conditioning heating unit called Rowan Pocket, made by Sony, as we were saying. And the device, if it works the way that it's it's marketed, actually could be really cool. It's the ability to cool down the wearer's body temperature by about 23 degrees and uh, raise the body temperature by about 14 degrees. So, you know, that can make enough of a difference. 
And I know for a lot of our listeners that are cosplayers and that type of thing, this is where I'm interested in it. Would it oh. work in that kind of an environment, you know? Okay, okay. Now I'm starting to see the, oh, yeah, the Wookiee costumes and then, then like the, uh, the the furry people, you know? Yeah, okay, anything that like was the thing about wearing it normally because yeah. I get hot and yeah. I don't really want to be hot. I, so. I think it has both applications and it works right. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. The other thing that's kind of cool about it is it's a Bluetooth device. So you operate it from your smartphone. So the idea is that you would be wearing this thing. Uh-huh. And you would change the temperature, change the settings, turn it on and off, most likely from an app. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of cool, too. So you don't have to take it off to change any settings. And, uh, you know, wearable tech is becoming a bigger deal. We're seeing it. The smartwatches, of course, kind of being the head of that market. But there's a lot of different things. I just saw a wearable uh, mask that is electric and you can change the color on it when you want. So yeah, uh, the face masks, yeah, yeah. They're, they're coming up with LED masks now. Oh, so. they might as well have fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know, just uh, different uses of technology that I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more of as time goes by. Adobe Flash to sunset in December. Is so, that the uh, colorful way of saying hey, they're going to turn it off? Uh, basically, yes. A sunset okay. means that it's the okay. end of life. Would be another about term. This. Hmm. They've been talking about Adobe Flash going away for like uh, like 10 years. <laughs> yes, yes, they have. Although I think a lot of that was a wishful standpoint from programmers like me. Um, now, Jeremy, I know you have a little different opinion. So anybody that doesn't know, Flash is a system that allows for doing graphics through the web. In today's world, this is somewhat unremarkable. But when it first came out and was first created, you couldn't do video and graphics like that through a web browser. So it became a solution to that, but I remember it being extremely difficult to program for. They had its own programming language called ActionScript and later versions where you could do logic and that type of things, but it just was something that was uh, kind of a pain to work with. You could only use it if you had the plugin for your browser. And then right. when we went to mobile technology, uh, Apple, I don't think ever completely supported it. And if they did, it was for a short period. Um, so it would create a, a, you know, a situation with that. But now that being said, and that being my opinion, I know you've worked with Flash. What did you think about it? Okay. It was, it was interesting to work with. It was really difficult to learn, especially for me, because I, I, it was just something that didn't really make any sense. But having done other forms of, of animation, it made more sense. But even then, you got to make sure all you hit all these little marks and do all these little things. And figure out how to do all your layers and thing. It was just this dynamic process of hundreds of steps to failure before you could figure out if it was going to work. You know, the other, th- the other thing I think that really kind of was a, a death nail for Flash, not when it happened, but now, is so much of the internet is expected to be open source. You can access yeah. things, it's free to program, that type of thing. And uh, Flash was later, it was Macromedia. It was actually its own company to begin with. Then it was Macromedia. And then Adobe bought Macromedia later and acquired the rights to it from that. So it's your player, the plugin for your browser, all that stuff had to go through Adobe. It was the only way that it would work. And when Adobe uh, published this, Steve Jobs wrote a paper called Thoughts on Flash, where he didn't have, a let's just say, a very high opinion of it. It's worth reading the paper if you really want to get into it. And his opinion of it, I think, started where people were going, oh, this isn't necessarily what we want to do. And then HTML5 came out and was able to do just about everything Flash could. So while it was definitely a pioneer in its time, it's become obsolete. And there's been a lot of security problems with it lately. 
And I know on the Chrome browser, it pops up a warning if you have it enabled, and it's going to be completely disabled across the board when it sunsets, as they call it, at the end of December. 8K video codec in the works. So we had high definition. Oh, that's, well, we had standard definition, which is really obsolete now. Yes, Then high definition, and then 4K, and now 8K. Now, with all of these different things, you want to be able to stream because as technology moves on, more and more of us are using things like Netflix and Disney Plus and other platforms like that to get our content than we are buying a Blu-ray disc, as a for example, or a digital download. And with 8K televisions now starting to be out there and becoming a standard, you can buy them. Uh, they're not really that unusual anymore. They're still a lot more expensive and usually only in the bigger sizes. But the idea of being able to stream 8K is becoming an issue. So this technology is being devised. It's called H.266 for our tech geeks out there. And it's mm-hmm. basically a form of a streaming codec that allows you to do 8K content and have it look right and do all of the things that 8K is supposed to do. So it's still being tested out right now. It's still in the development stages, but I think it is something that we're definitely going to see pretty soon. And it's going to mean that when you're on Netflix or any of these other streaming apps, eventually you're actually going to be able to get native 8K content. Now, one of the other things with this too is the need for bandwidth and bandwidth consumption. And this is something that from the initial articles on it, the white paper, it looks like it's going to be cutting the uh, need of bandwidth from native 8K about 50%. So that's going to be really a winner on that front too. You know, so I think it's something that definitely is, it's time is here. We'll see it. And as we start upgrading again, 8K definitely is something that's going to be more and more uh, needed. All right, Bill. I have a horrible question for you. Okay. Is it, can you actually tell the difference like a regular person between, 4K and 8K? I can between HD and 4K. 4K and 8K, 4K and 8K, the couple of times I've seen it demoed, it was on a 55 or maybe a 65-inch screen, and I didn't see much of a difference there. But if you're getting into a 100-inch plus screen, then you will see a difference because the higher resolution would stand out. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Got a great show for you this week. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. As we've all been having to deal with the lockdown from the virus, and now we're coming out of it a little bit, but things are still weird to say the least, one of the <laughs> things we've been doing is uh, rereading books and rewatching television. And in line with that, I know you both have been working on reading The Lord of the Rings. Now, I know that they have had the movies that have come out and all that type of thing. I know that they're talking about a television series with Amazon that actually sounds great. But the reality of the situation is this comes from the books. That's where the original story is, and that's what it's based on. And both of you have been rereading them. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Okay, well, first of all, when I read them, I was like in high school. So was I. And um, I think uh, my first attempt or my first reading was The Hobbit in middle school, but then later on in high school, it was Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And The Lord of the Rings is is pretty involved. Um, I would have to say J.R.R. Tolkien really put a lot of work and effort and care into crafting these stories. Well, he, he built an entire universe. 
Yeah. You know, he, he crafted everything, all these different languages, the way different groups interact with each other. And it's kind of based around European lore, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. So, um, so I thought, well, why don't I reread this stuff? I haven't seen it. Uh, I haven't read them in a long time. I've watched the movies many times. I really liked the movies. Yep. I thought they were visually beautiful. And, and the interesting thing as I'm reading, rereading these books, as I'm discovering, they're kind of loosely following the, <laughs> the books. Though they're, they're, it's, it's tighter than The Hobbit, but it's still not as, not as exacting as, as they could have been. Yeah. Um, we've discovered there's characters that are completely missing and instances that are completely missing. And I think part of that is if you're uh, a movie producer or director, um, you're like, well, I can't put everything in. So you have to trim the fat or uh, maybe uh, leave the dessert off the table. and <laughs> Lots of little things. So we've discovered some interesting characters that are missing from the story. Um, there's an elf named Gildor that is missing. And he is uh, very important to making sure that uh, our four hobbits safely uh, arrive to Rivendell. And he makes sure that an individual named Tom Bombadil. Yeah, who they totally glossed over in the movies. <laughs> and his wife, Goldberry. Mm-hmm. Um, who they also totally glossed over. Yeah, in the movies. And, and these are very interesting, unusual characters. Um, when, as I'm reading through, I'm like, who are these people? They're not wizards. Uh, they're not regular folk. They're almost like, uh, an old European, like, uh, whites Mm -hmm. or, uh, maybe a Native American, uh, nature spirit. Right. These people are like centered in a certain area that's not far from the Shire. And it's like that area they protect and they have great power just over that area. So they come to the rescue of Frodo, Sam, Pippin, and Mary to make sure that um, the Black Riders don't get them. And, and, and there's also a scene right right around that with the Barrow Whites, oh, and yeah. they just they skipped right over that, like it's not even important. <laughs> Except that's how the Hobbits got their weapons. So why do you think they do this in the movies where they will skip entire pieces of the original story? Well, I have a feeling what they end up doing is it's they they write they go through and they pick the plot points that they'd really like to hit and think that everybody else would like to see, and they figure out how much time they can actually, you know, you make a movie out of. Right. Because remember, we've got two completely different versions of the Lord of the Rings movies. Because there's the regular version you see in the theater that's like two and a half hours, and then there's the four hour plus version <laughs> on the special edition DVDs. It's got like. 42, 42 extra scenes in there. And some of them are only a couple seconds long, different dialogue, different, different filming angles. But then there's stuff that's, that was not included at all. And it changes the movie. Yeah. Um, there's a scene in the movie where, um, the four hobbits quickly get this feeling like we got to get off the road. So they hide at the edge of the road where there's kind of like a, a tree, a, a, a tree, tree, roots. tree roots and the black riders come and it's really creepy. That isn't in the book. I really love that scene, but it's not in the book. <laughs> so it's so you have scenes that are added to the movies too. Then yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So um, also, Arwen, uh, the beautiful elf, um, she uh, rest takes uh, Frodo 
to Rivendale, that doesn't happen in the books. Hmm. Uh, instead, there used to be a guy named Glorfindel mm-hmm. who showed up to help Strider and the Hobbits uh, make it to Rivendell safely. But um, they added Arwen instead. And I'm thinking they thought they could leave Glorfindel out of the story to just make things shorter. Mm-hmm. And maybe they thought, well, let's introduce Arwen first. Yeah. You know, um, so they needed a love, they needed a love aspect of the whole thing. And yeah. she and, and Aragorn are, the are whole, already, yeah. you know, that yeah. way. Um, so, so. all that. <laughs> so what do you think? Are you, are you ready to go and reread the books, Bill? Or have oh, yeah, you well, ever but, even read them? But I'm an, I, oh, I've read them and I'm an unfair, you know, critic of that because I loved them the first time I read them and I don't mind going through them again. But from what you're saying, it sounds like, you know, definitely you're going to have, slightly different experiences or major mm-hmm. different experiences between the book and the movie. And, you know, I know personally, I don't think I would have necessarily done well with the challenge of making those movies. And I have to respect everybody and all the work that went into them because it would be very difficult to take something that is such a known story yeah. and redo it as a screenplay. And, you know, yeah, well, see, this is where we get weird because when they, when they redid The Hobbit, they could have made that in two movies. Yeah. And they could have just used the information in the books, in the one book. Instead, they uh, made it into three movies, which was way too long. So then they had to add in stuff that didn't exist. Right, right. You know, the, the, the white orc with the missing hand, he was dead. He doesn't exist. <laughs> he's gone. He's been dead for years. He shouldn't have been in the movie. I, now, is he so, in the Silmo, so, Silmarillion? Yeah. Okay. But and that's a different you know, book. Yeah. And that's like from long, long, long time ago. So we'll have to read that eventually, too. So we have 10 seconds here. So there's other books than the ones we know about. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So that sounds like something we can talk about on a future show. I didn't know that. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> so there you are. This is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. This section is our Q&A where you ask your questions and we try to get you some answers. Send in your questions, one user-friendly on Facebook and Twitter, or give us a call anytime, 503-766-6264. What questions do we have this week? What is a keylogger? What is a keylogger? Good question. I don't know. (laughs) Tell me. (laughs) So, um, uh, the way you asked that kind of set me off a little bit there, but we'll get back to it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, a keylogger is a type of malware, and what it does is it gets installed on your computer, and a remote person can watch everything you do. So, if that sounds like the sound of this, yeah, I was going to say, if it sounds creepy, it should be. And where this works mainly is in things like a web browser. So as you're, you're typing, they see what you type. So if you go to your website, bankofamerica.com, and enter your username and password, even if you see the stars or the dots, they can see what you're typing. And that's what a keylogger does. So it, this goes back a long time. They started well before the internet, but uh, they're just the idea of somebody being able to get in and spy on the work you're doing and being able to get your personal information. So just another way to get to it. The way that these get installed a lot of times is by opening a malicious link in an email or an attachment that you don't know. So the same procedures to protect yourself against spam emails will work for this. 
Is malware software the same as antivirus software? Yeah, this is another listener question that came in, and it's a good one in the sense of these are actually two different things. Now, most antivirus suites, modern ones, will also do malware, but they're actually two different sides of a coin. So what they tend to call these things is a security software as opposed to just an antivirus program. So if you look at Norton Antivirus versus Semantic Security, um, one will include more protections than the other. Antivirus software looks for viruses that come in and would do things to mess up your machine, whereas a malware program actually looks at software being installed, and if it doesn't know what it is, can stop it. Now, neither of these are 100%, but it is definitely better to have them than to not have them. Can I delete my Facebook account? Yep, good question there, too. Yeah. Social media is kind of waning a little bit lately, and there's a lot going on with it, a lot of controversy and that type of thing, and this is coming up more and more. If, what if I just don't want to do social media? Facebook specifically has a mode where you can disable your account but not actually delete it. So you can delete it too, but there's two different things, and you kind of want to think about what you're doing with that. The disabling mode makes it look like you're gone, so your posts don't show up, you don't show up on a friends list, that type of thing. Your icon will still be there, but your picture will go away, kind of like you deleted the account. But if you change your mind later, you can go back and all of your information will still be there. Now, Facebook, I tried to do this recently, and Facebook was somewhat aggressive in trying to get me to set a time so it would automatically reactivate my account. But there are ways to work around that. So you just right. want to use one of the other options. They'll want you to tell them why you're leaving, all this kind of stuff. But it does work. Oh, and uh, it does allow you to take a hiatus, if you will, from the social media site. If you delete your account, that's also doable, but everything's gone. So if you want to come back, you would have to start with a fresh account and you wouldn't have any of your original posts. What is an Amazon Flash Briefing? We are on Flash Briefing and we've started getting some questions of what is this and how do I do it? And this is something to do with your Amazon Echo device. And what a Flash Briefing is, is you can compile a list of which news outlets you want to hear. And then you ask your smart speaker to play them is basically what it is. And when you go in and set that up, you have different choices in there in the skills in your Alexa app. And when you get into that, you can choose which outlets you want to actually hear. Definitely add user friendly to it, but you can also add some of the other ones if you want them to. What is a Chromebook laptop? Yeah, question we've had before, and we've talked a little bit about the differences in notebook computers in the past. And Chromebook came out, it's a product that is by Google, uh, although there are other manufacturers, but it runs on the Chrome OS, which they create, which is very similar to the Android OS that's on most of our smartphones. And the idea here was an inexpensive laptop. So it depends on what you do, if this will work for you. These run about one, two, three hundred $300, depending on what features you get in them and that type of thing. But the idea is it's instant start. It runs apps just like your phone would. In fact, the newer ones will run phone apps. So all of that hmm. uh, information is available. And what you can do with these is be able to send and receive email, run your browser, get on the internet, watch videos, all of that kind of stuff, which is about 80% of what people use computers for now. So if that's what your need is, it might be something worth looking at. Now, it won't run Windows software. It won't run Mac software. There are limitations on that. And if you're doing something high-end like the Adobe Suite or something of that nature, then you would need to look at a full computer with yeah. all of the capability. But for the Chromebook, this will serve the purpose for a lot of users. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break.
Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Joining us now, reporter Steve Mailer. You know, guys, one of the neat things about working in the production community is that you you come across some really, really neat people and uh, people with certain skills, certain abilities, and just really neat personalities. And I have one of those with me today. Her name is Addie Eichelbosch. And she and I have done some concert work together, convention work together, and a lot of just audiovisual production work together at the Peppermill Hotel here in northern Nevada. And uh, Addie, thank you so much for joining us here on User Friendly today. It's it'll be nice catching up with you. Yeah. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. Like I said, you're one of those interesting people who work on very interesting projects, and you connect. You know, you've done things with um, some students. Videos, and it's always fun learning about what you've done and how you kind of got there. And a few months back, I had a, an opportunity to interview John Allen and Ivy Smith, two filmmakers here in northern Nevada that you're pretty darn familiar with. Uh, John wrote and directed a film that you were involved with called Metastases, and I'm sure you remember that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was a very fun film to work on. And what John had you do, you actually were brought on to shoot the film as the the camera operator. What was that experience like? How did you enjoy that? Very exciting to be behind the camera and as the camera operator just feeling the the, the sense of that I would, you know, I was even scared behind mm-hmm. the camera um, and that, you know, the characters were just so into their role and I would just get so excited um, because I knew that whoever was going to watch uh, this film that they're going to really get a kick out of it and, and you know, uh, have a thrilling experience. John gave me a, a copy of the film, so I did have a chance to watch it, which was, it was interesting for me because about four years ago, John brought the story to me and we had started doing actually some pre-production work on metastases and then he got busy and I got busy and our directions kind of went uh, different directions which is why I wasn't involved in it but metastases is very much a psychological thriller so I'm definitely seeing kind of what you're talking about where there were there were a few shots from the film that I definitely remember were very suspense filled or you know building suspense and you could definitely get a sense of kind of a foreboding or some kind of really strange thing going on within the story. So I kind of get a sense of what you're talking about, that as the camera operator, you were, I guess, seeing some of these shots come to life and you're getting caught up in the story and you're kind of scaring yourself is, is what it sounded like. Yeah, absolutely. That's honestly what made it so much fun. Yeah, John's yeah. a good storyteller. Um, what I noticed on your your Facebook profile is that you've also listed that you had done some production assistant work with Disney Plus. Now, here at User Friendly, a lot of our audience are very much into Disney Plus because of a lot of the content and programming that they have. We have a lot of Clone Wars fans and Mandalorian fans and Elite Force and Inhumans. So you have a really lot of fun programming uh, with Disney Plus. How did you get into working with Disney Plus and what did you do? Okay, so about five years ago, I was doing live production filming, uh, I believe, around the time that you and I worked together, mm-hmm. Steve, where um, there's actually another S- Steve, his name is Steve uh-huh. Duvall, and he discovered me through live production filming at the Pepper Mill, and he was very impressed with my work, 
And eventually, years later, I heard that he got signed on with Disney. Um, and he wrote a script called A Dog's Life. And I congratulated him. And he, you know, over over dinner one time, and he's like, you know, Addy, we would like some help. <laughs> And I was like, so it's wow. So that's kind of like, well, that's what we call being in the right place at the right time or knowing the right people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was out of the blue. It was kind of out of nowhere. Um, But as far as, you know, just my experience with live production filming, I'm also a a freelance videographer Mm -hmm. on the side. And Steve was very intrigued with me. And then I ended up working uh, on a Disney Plus production uh, and where Disney came to Reno and I worked with uh, Hollywood producers and the uh, voice of Goofy, uh, Bill Farmer. And it was an absolutely thrilling experience to just watch, you know, how how the setup was um, and the technical aspect of everything and just how things moved and and it was just it was so professional and it was absolutely an outstanding experience. Yeah, I mean, with, with as much production as we do, when you're when you're talking about doing a uh, some kind of project or a title that has the budget of you know a, a true Hollywood or mainstream production studio like Disney, like 20th Century Fox, like paramount i mean you you do kind of get a sense that the crews that you're working with and the budgets that they're working with are very very different than what i know that i would be used to and that i mean that's it's a perfect opportunity to be a sponge and watch how certain people do certain things and how they plan how they set up i mean it's like going to film school it's awesome oh yeah definitely like just being immersed in the experience was just it was outstanding yeah. so now i know for me with uh, what's happened with the covid19 pandemic i know that a lot of the productions that i was involved with really kind of came to a crashing halt how has that affected you um it's affected me immensely you know the production world and the entertainment world was my life yeah um it gave me such a strong purpose in my life and to not have that for the time being i feel a bit lost yeah i feel like what we need is is some hope here that it's going to come back i think it will i do too and i think that there are doubts that i have but at the same time like i'm holding on to that because yes i've worked with disney and i have also worked with google i you know and i've worked with some big names but at the same time, it's not really about that. It was about the experience and the journey. Yeah. And, you know, maybe this part with COVID-19, this is our journey to maybe really figure out, well, what do we want to do in this industry? And and maybe what we were doing before wasn't working for us. And now we need to kind of reframe our story a little bit. Right. Oh, I think there's going to be a period of adjustment, certainly, to see, okay, well, how are we going to be doing things now? How is this going to treat the process of how we've been doing things in the past? And, uh, and, and you know, in an interesting way, it's it's kind of a waiting game because nobody knows. It's like we're this is all kind of unfolding as a new experience for everyone since so much of this pandemic has been unheard of. Basically, I'm just taking it kind of day to day. Things are slowly coming back. They're not quite there yet. The The shutdown you know, affected projects that Bill, Jeremy, and Gretchen were working on also because they're SAG members. Everyone is kind of just 
you know, waiting game right now to see what's happening with it. But, you know, just hang in there because I'm sure it is going to come back. I think it's just a matter of time and seeing what the new process is going to be or the new methods of doing things is going to be. And I think that that could be interesting and maybe exciting in a way. Well, Addie, I do appreciate you visiting with us today here at User Friendly. And we'll catch up with you in the future and we'll just hope for the best and figure that everyone's going to get back to work and we're going to be producing and creating again. Definitely. Thank you so much, Steve. Bill, Jeremy, and Gretchen, back to you in the studio. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Great show this week. Yep. One of the as things, always. As always, <laughs> yes. Well, as usually. I mean, you know, hopefully always. Um, we had, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about our Tech Wednesday stuff. Um, and this is something that we've been doing for a while. It's a blog in combination with a weekly radio spot that talks about what's going on in technology, some of the topics for that week and that type of thing, which airs on Wednesday at The Answer Portland. And this week's topic was 5G. And Gretchen, I know that you edit the articles that we put out there. Mm-hmm. What's your opinion of 5G? Very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also find it seems like maybe there would be less confusion if the advertisers wouldn't use the term 5G until they're actually using it. Yeah, well, and that's one particular one. And from what I understand, they have stopped doing it, or at least they said they're going to. Uh-huh. What you're talking about there is AT&T that was calling their advanced 4G, 5GE, the E being for evolution. So kind uh-huh. of the idea that it was the evolutionary point into 5G, wanting to get ahead on everybody else by saying they had this. The problem is with this type of technology is 5G will be a lot faster if it's deployed correctly and that type of thing. And if what you're really giving the user is a different experience and one that's not the new technology, it kind of sets expectations very low. And one of the things that that's done with the 5G, G being for generation, so it's the next upgrade to mobile data, is that this is a technology that actually will be able to compete with your wired internet connection. So instead of a cable modem or DSL or fiber, that type of a thing, you would actually, at least theoretically, be able to use 5G as your primary internet access for your home or business. And if that works then all of a sudden we're going to have another competitor in the space, which will be kind of nice, especially for markets that don't have many providers now. And the other side of it is, is another alternative if wired internet isn't available. There are rural areas and stuff that still have, uh, you know, where they don't have internet providers. So anyway, so that's an example of what Tech Wednesday is. It was the one that we did this week. And the blog that we do every week is at theanswerportland.com. And the Tech Wednesday blog is right there on the top of the website. And just click on it and let us know what you think. And like so much of our show, that information is brought to us from listener questions. So 5G and some of the other things are what you've sent in. And sometimes it's the news or topics for that week. And speaking of which, guys, the Q&A was good this week. I think, uh, you know, that's really a fun part of what we do. It is. It is. I enjoy that. I like hearing what kind of questions or what, what people are thinking about. Yeah, me too. And it's, you know, definitely something that's interest, interesting to be able to deal with that kind of thing. All right, so upcoming events here real quick. Uh, not a lot going on. Uh, Emerald City was canceled. We talked about that as well as the UFO Festival. Black Hat is happening virtually the uh, first week of August, August 1st, August 4th, so we'll be covering that. Uh, Silicon Valley Comic Con, now called Silicon, 
is set for October 16th through 18th, so we'll see if that actually happens, and then the Star Trek convention in December. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Until next week, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2020, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. The views and opinions expressed in this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or the station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting provided by WeAreTechnology.com. Podcast available at TheAnswerPortland.com or UserFriendlyShow.com.